There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, this is the second episode in my HIV miniseries, made possible by the generous support of the British Podcast Awards Pulse Fund and the Wellcome Trust. In it, I talk with HIV activist, mentor, coach, and charming man about town, Mark Thompson. I hope you enjoy it. You're listening to Probably True. Please be aware that this podcast may contain strong language and adult themes. It would be boring without them. I first became aware of, of AIDS before HIV in probably 1983-84. I was at school. I was 14, 15, kind of becoming aware of my own sexuality, my own identity, and knew that I liked boys, was really into kind of stealing porn magazines and nice. Zipper and him and what was then Gay Times. And I remember seeing an article on the front cover of what was then called Him magazine. It was kind of like boys of its day, a little bit twinky. And on the front cover were these this cartoon drawing of a bunch of like twink boys in test tubes. And that really stuck with me. And I knew that something was going on. There was a BBC documentary that had come out around that time as well, around the epidemic in San Francisco and New York. And I'd seen that. And as a young gay boy slowly come to terms with his identity, I knew it was this thing that was happening, but it was happening in the US. Didn't know anything about it here. And when I came out when I was 16, I knew again that this thing was bubbling in the background and it was all over the news. It was, you know, in the papers. It was all the horrific HIV stigmatising headlines that we're really familiar with. But in my coming out, nobody in my community really spoke about it at all. It wasn't something we knew about. And it was only when I eventually went and got tested that it really became something part of my life. I went and got tested because it was a brand new thing to do. And a couple of my friends had heard about the test. And it was a HTLV3 test. It wasn't a test. Well, it was a test for HIV, but it wasn't called that then. The virus hadn't been really named at that point. And I just started seeing somebody. He was a good few years older than me. And he was like, this test is available, go and get it. And I was like, yeah, sure, why not? And so off I popped. I'd had two, three three lovers before that point. And off I popped down to what was then Westminster Hospital for my test, thinking it was going to be negative and I'd be carrying on with my life. And that was it. So it was just the right thing to do. It was a box to be ticked and I could just get on and go and meet a friend for lunch. You'd go along and you would have pre-test counselling where you would sit and you would meet with a health advisor or a nurse and they would talk you through the test, talk you through your risk. You'd then get a test, then you would go away and drum roll, you would wait for two weeks for your result. I remember friends of mine not eating for two weeks, being panicked, sweating, all that kind of stuff. I just kind of got on with life because I thought it was going to be negative. Then you'd go back and you'd get your results and if they were negative, you were sent on your way and if they were positive, you'd get another test done to confirm the results and you'd wait another two weeks. Oh, fuck. So in total, you'd wait around four weeks to get your confirmatory result. My result was positive and I received some post-test counselling from, not counselling, a chat with a health advisor. Again, a much 
older nurse who, again, and that's kind of problematic because you're a young person, you want somebody you can engage and you can relate to. And that was a real challenge for me in terms of accepting my diagnosis at that point. I mean, the immediate moment when I got that result, I felt absolute darkness, complete silence around me. And I felt, I can physically describe it as just being in a tunnel with no light at all. And what's interesting in my work in subsequent years around people who are newly diagnosed, I asked them how did they feel when they got that result. And nine times out of 10, that's the response, complete shock, silence, devastated. And this thing of being kind of just falling down a well into darkness. And I remember being really hurt, really angry and really upset and thinking of two things at that moment. My grandfather, who I was really close to, and the fact that I'd probably never have kids because I really wanted to be a dad. I didn't think about death. I didn't think of anything else. It was just those two things. And it took me a really long time to process that. I mean, I was 17. I was at college. I had my future kind of mapped out. And there I was presented with death. And not just death, but a really shameful, frightening, isolating, violent death. So what did you do? Like, <laughs> just, wow. I went to lunch. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I mean, that day, no, that day, to be honest with you, I really did go out for lunch. I was meant to meet a friend and I just went, went out for lunch. But what I did for a good few months was to kind of sit on it. And I was just really, really angry. And I was an angry young man anyway. And I just bottled it up for a really, really long time. But I was really lucky because I had a new boyfriend who I told and he was incredibly supportive and he was really good. He was really close to my mum and he suggested that I speak to my mum. And that just was a, a valve that was released when I did that. My mum was great. My mum was incredibly supportive. I mean, she stood by me. She said all the right things, made all the right noises. I know inside she was suffering a lot and she had to manage this fear, but she never let it show. She, the most important thing was that I knew that she was there for me and had my back. So the other side to that is, is that my mum always says, you know, she did what she was meant to do as a mum. I mean, it wasn't, it was no question that she wouldn't be there for me. So she educated herself. She found out. And I was speaking to her the other week. She's like, you know, I told your grandmother like two days after. And I was like, you did what? <laughs> <laughs> and she was like, yeah, your grandmother went, you know, it's kind of like looked up Oprah and all these sorts of things. I was like, wow. So yeah, I was really fortunate. I had a really supportive family. So that helped my transition. And so this was 80s? This would have been 87, 87. 88. You know, when you're when you're 17, 18, and you're just starting out in the world and you're trying to find your place and your, your own mortality is thrown up in your face, it's mind-blowing, right? And it's not like, I mean, in my head, it wasn't like cancer. It wasn't like, di you know, it's like diabetes. It wasn't like cancer. I wasn't going to have this romantic kind of deathbed scene with everybody around me. It was going to be horrible. And my parents and my family were going to have to carry the shame. So there was all of that. And that when it throws up in your face, you can do one or two things. You can sit back and go, okay, let it take over me, or you fuck it, I'm going to fight this. And I was I was young, and I decided, gonna. I didn't even consciously do it. It was just like, I'm going to grab the ball by both horns, and I'm going to party. So I went out, I gave up college, I dropped out of doing my A-levels, um, found a job. My, my mum gave me a choice. You do college or you go to work. Fuck it, I'm going to go to work. Earn a nice salary, got my own flat and lived my life and just went out and did all of the things that a 21, 22-year-old should do. Not what, I mean, I was constantly aware of my health. I was going for checkups every three months at the doctors. Any spot on my leg, any cough, any fever, I was like, okay, this is it. You know, <laughs> pack up, go home, you know, and then it would pass and I'd be fine. It was always hanging over you. It swung there. I stopped making plans for my future. I met a an American guy who, you know, fell in love with and he was like, come to live in San Francisco, it's going to be amazing. And I was like, well, why would I do that? I'm going to die in a year. So there was all those dreams that you just stopped doing. 
you just, and I was kind of reckless, but I also had the excuse of HIV again, well, I ain't going to be here, so I could just do what I want. Sorry, exes. <laughs> <laughs> Did you notice people treating you differently when they kind of found out through other people that, that this was... Well, it would, it would repeat itself. And what would happen was I didn't know that people knew until people started to ask me. So here's the example. I would go, I would meet a really cute guy, go on the date and think it's going really well. And then be like, I've heard... Or I would go out on a date with a really cute guy and be like, look, I've got something to tell you. And they'd be like, yeah, I already know. So that would happen. It happened time and time again. And it got to a point where I would start dating people and I would be so fearful. I mean, I'd sit by the phone. I'd be panicking. I'd, I'd have anxiety around that. And I wasn't great at disclosing then. Now, on reflection, I understand why. And I understand that I didn't have to. So there was all of that pressure that was going on. And you're a mixed up 22, 23-year-old and you just want to kind of live your life. So it made me incredibly angry with my community because I expected my community to be supportive and to be understanding. 20, 30 years later, I recognised that that comes from a place of fear and a place of ignorance and not knowing. That's when I started to dedicate. I sound so strong, dedicate. I started to put myself in educating people. I thought it was really important because I didn't want other men who were diagnosed positive to have to face that fear and that ignorance that I had because I knew that I had a huge amount of privilege from my family supporting me. And the best way to utilise that was to go out and educate and to challenge that stigma. It's having to come out twice, yeah, essentially, to... I mean, loads of positive people that I work with now, particularly positive gay men, in the past 10 years have always described to me that they're, they're coming out around their HIV is like they're coming out around their gayness or they've used the tools that they use for coming out for their coming out around their HIV. I think what many gay men struggle with is that the rejection or the, the stigma they face from other gay men around their HIV. Were there any particularly negative reactions that you experienced to your coming out as either gay and or HIV positive? I mean, I never, I've never experienced violence, okay. physical, which I think is a really important thing for me to stress around my HIV or my, my sexuality. And I know there are lots of people who have, and I occupy, as I said, quite a privileged space. Also, I'm quite a tough cookie, and I don't kind of put up with a lot of shit from people, and that kind of comes across that so people know you're not the one to mess with. So that's, that, that, that's me. I think the negative experiences that I, I had was around my HIV was usually around dating where I might meet somebody and I'd be faced with just levels of ignorance like oh, I don't understand. And, I'm like, and I started to get to a point where I'd push back and I'd say, you're a gay man that's having sex. You should know this stuff. And so that's where I would always push back. But I'd witness the ignorance. I'd see it with other people that I might work with or engage with or provide support to, people that were in my circle. I certainly felt it in the air. I certainly felt that negativity. So one then held back their own story, kept things quiet. So in the same way that many people don't come out because it's safer not to, particular spaces, that's, and so that's negativity in the air. Mm -hmm. And I think the same thing applied to my HIV. It was always in the delivery, right? So there was a little bit of either humour or being straight up and, you know, telling people to get out of my face or whatever it is or get out of a person's face or, or get out of the issue's face. But providing people with the facts, providing people the right information, you know, you, you can't go wrong with that. And I think that I was really good at, at doing that, at constantly challenging. And I come from a really kind of fiery Jamaican, Brixton background you know my, my parents were not activists or anything like that they were just regular working class folk but they had fire in their belly and I think that's just been passed down to me so it's just something I do. Were there any particularly 
bad experiences you had with medical professionals? Were there any particularly judgmental doctors or anything like that? (laughs) Oh, yeah. It was later in life. It was never really early on. All of my HIV care was in HIV clinics and HIV specialists. And in the UK, I can only speak for the UK, we have amazing HIV care. God bless us. I went to GP, general practitioner, around a chest infection. It was on my notes. I'm HIV positive because you should tell your GP. And it was a locum who didn't know me. And she looked at my notes. She's like, oh, I see you have HIV. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And she's like, you know. And she did the thing that I know lots of positive people hate. I don't hate it as much because I use it as a tool to educate. And she said to me, so how did you get it? <laughs> and my answer to that usually is don't ask me how, ask me why. Because there's a, there's a big answer to that. And she said to me, so how did you get it? And I was like, fucking in the ass." <laughs> You're shocking. You're a doctor. And she said to me, well, we all know better now, don't we? And I was like, I'm still fucking in the arse. (laughs) (laughs) How I got HIV is is scientific. It's biological. We know that. Sounds kind of fun. It sounds kind of fun. Well, it was at the time. (laughs) The reason I got HIV, I was young. I was a black gay man. So we are disproportionately affected by HIV. I didn't have access to the right information. I didn't feel empowered enough to tell my partner to use condoms. So, and I didn't think that I was at risk because I thought HIV was out over there and it was somebody else's issue. And if we flash forward 32, 33 years later, men in my community, men of colour, men whose first language isn't English, younger men are getting infected by HIV for exactly the same reasons. If we had all those things in place, if we had great sexual relationships education at school, if every young gay man was coming out of school empowered and enabled enough to have the sex he wanted with the people he wanted, if we as a community, and I'm going to say this, were better at looking after our young rather than eating our young, then we would also be in a better place. So a young gay man shouldn't be coming out, going onto Grindr at 16, and the first thing he's being offered is poppers and or crystal meth, Right? I mean, we should be nurturing, teaching, enabling our our young people as well, as well as the services that should wrap around that. So I think that we've still got a long way to go and people shouldn't be getting HIV for the same reasons I did in 1986. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. You know, what happens between, say, 85, 86 and, say, 97, right, where we start to get treatment and, mm-hmm. and, and the landscape slowly starts to shift. The community is being impacted hugely, right? We are seeing 
HIV infection is just constantly, constantly, year in, year out. We're seeing AIDS death year in, year out. But what we're also seeing is a community response, right? So we're seeing support services start up, like the Terence Higgins Trust, the Lighthouse, the Landmark, GMFA, Gay Men Fighting AIDS, all of this stuff, the community is coming together and pushing back. We're starting to see activism in a way that we haven't really seen since the early days of the Gay Liberation Front in, say, 72, 73. And even that was quite niche you know that was your radicals your your Mm. theories that are out there and what happens with the epidemic in the 80s there's this huge groundswell of people wanting to do something and having to fight literally for their lives so you have art happening you have music happening you have magazines you have all of these things which come out at the same time as the epidemic what also interestingly happens at this time is that clause 28 happens right? So the community has already started to fight back about the epidemic. Clause 28 comes along, these two things align, and boom, you have this activism movement come together. We can track, which we should do, the links between HIV activism and marriage equality 20 years later, because without the HIV activism, that never would have happened. But that's a whole nother podcast. <laughs> but, in all, but, but what happens is the community is the community's fighting back. But we're also stemming a flow. This is constantly happening. I'm personally setting up groups specifically for black gay men around education, advocacy and support. So we set up Let's Rap in 92, Big Up in 94, Blackliners in around 89. So all of these things are happening in the community to respond. So I kind of look back on that time and think, yeah, it was it was hell. You know, it's 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 our war. We we were a generation. But I think when we look back, there were some amazing things that happened. There's a, a great writer called Eric Rofes. He says that communities come together in crisis. And that's what we did. We fought back. It was a fight all the time, you know. And, you know, I look back on documentary footage of that time. And not only do I see the fight that we were having, you know, on small individual levels at community levels, at national level, at international levels. But you know what always strikes me when I look back at that footage? is how young we were. How young this community was. Because the older community had either been burnt out, worn out, or were dead, right? Mm-hmm. So this young community of 21, 22, 30-year-olds were coming out. And if you look at any of that footage, I'm always blown away that we were young. So you have the, the, the verve and the viver of youth, the pushing back. So, I mean, we, you know, we were like the Greta Thunbergs of our day, right? <laughs> <laughs> Taking more planes and trains, though. Sorry, Greta. Um, but we were really, really young. And that in itself is so powerful. And I think that I really want the community now to look back at that time not in the sense of kind of just remembering oh my gosh there's a generation that we lost but looking back and being inspired that oh my god these young people got up they pushed back they fought back for their lives we can do the same what can we learn from that you know how do we need to take to the streets maybe we don't but how can we use our social media our instagrams all the rest of it to build community and develop in a way that that bunch had to I got into it accidentally. Uh, no, kind of accidentally, a little bit. I just fell into activism. Now, there was a little bit of, I was going to a place called The Landmark uh, to get counselling and therapy and support. And um, one day they uh, asked me, they were recruiting some new volunteers. And they asked me if I'd come along as a service user and give a talk to these volunteers. Um, and I was like, yeah, sure. You know, it's a closed group. I feel quite safe here. Um, but I also, when I was at school, I used to love drama and um, putting on shows and things like that. So there was a theatrical in me as well. So I was able to go along and do this talk to this room of 20, 30 people and, you know, 
put on a, you know, the Mark Thompson story. And everyone was looking at you. All eyes. All <laughs> eyes were on me. And it, and it was really great. But I also knew that my story at that time had the power to influence people to do something. And I started to get invited to do more and more of these talks. And um, I volunteered for an organisation called Blackliners, which was set up to support African and African Caribbean people through the epidemic. Heterosexual, gay, didn't matter. But only kind of did a little bit of work there. But there's some friends of mine who were setting up something called Let's Rap. And they'd got a little bit of funding to run a weekly, bi-weekly group for black gay men in Bethnal Green in a church hall on a Sunday afternoon around Safer Sex. And I was like, well, I'm having some of this. So, um, some of the safer sex. Some yeah. of the safer sex. Yeah. You know, why not? <laughs> and so, um, you know, contacted the guys and um, they were all in their late 20s. I was 21, 22. And uh, they said, yeah, come along. And I just started running these workshops. And it was fun because I was there every week and we were talking about safer sex and putting condom bananas on, no, condoms on bananas. And it was just a great opportunity to teach men at that time had to stay safe but it was also about building community and getting us to connect because as black queer men at that time we weren't connecting outside of our party and it just slowly snowballed into me getting involved in more and more work there was a moment when i was 26 and i was in washington dc and i i told this story because i think it's important for me and i'd um i hadn't kind of I was doing some work around HIV, but I hadn't really come out about my status to lots of people. And I went to this event, which was at a group called Us Helping Us, which was an African-American organisation for people who were living with HIV. And um, there was like a Sunday church service, and it was before treatment, and had a big gospel choir. It was everything you'd imagine an African-American... Everything yep. you'd imagine an African-American church to be, apart from the big Sunday church lady hats, which were missing. Oh. And they had all these folk come on stage and they were testing about their HIV status. And I came away feeling, this is it. This is it. And I went back to my hotel, called my mum and said, I now know why I got HIV to do this work. And that was it. I'd been searching for something for a really long time. And that felt like this was my calling, my vocation to do this. It just felt right. A little HIV angel <laughs> <laughs> sitting on my shoulder. <laughs> All of those experiences I had in my, my late teens and my early 20s, um, up until, say, I was like 25, really spurred me on to be resilient, to be stronger. But what it also really spurred me on to do was to go out and create my own. If it's not there for you, go and build it, right? I could I could have sit down and moaned at the landmark. I could have gone to Terence Higgins Trust and gone, you should do more, you should do this. Sod that. Get out and make your own. And this is why, for example, Big Up came about, the Black Gay Men's Organization. We or, or Patrick Scott, who was the founder, recognized that black liners were not doing a, a, a job for black gay men. And then looked at GMFA, who were great, but they were not including black gay men in their work. And he was like, right, I'm going to create my own. And it's the same thing we've done with Blackout. It's the same thing we did with, with Prepster, the two organizations that I run now, was that we were seeing that folk weren't doing it. Let's step in and let's do it. And let's do it the way, not, I'm not going to say better, let's do it the way that we want to do it. What would be your advice to young queer kids coming and going, all right, I want to make a difference. I want to get involved and, and make things better, however. I mean, like, first of all, do it. 
<laughs> I mean, I mean, seriously, do it. Trust your instinct. Do it. If you think something's wrong, then speak up against it. Speak up about it. You know, find find your community, build that community. But first of all, find, use your voice. You have that voice, and it's been given to you for a reason. Sometimes you might be completely off the wall, you know, and, and it may be completely wrong. But you'll learn from that and from that development. The other thing I would really say is connect with people, right? Because we live in an age of social media and, you know, it's so low accounts and all that, it feels to me as an older person that sometimes, and again, I'm conscious of not sounding like that patronising old man that's like, in my day, it's not about in my day, but it is about you cannot build community as an in, just on your own. You need people around you. So set up WhatsApp groups, right? <laughs> set up groups on Facebook or Snapchat, whatever it is you're using, and build the community from there. But then also get out there. Go out into the world and protest and, and, and boycott and do the things that you're doing. I think that you have the power and read books. Find out our history and those amazing activists that have gone before or the movements that have gone before that have brought us to where we are today because across the globe we're seeing so many attacks on different people and we have the power to to shift and to change it and to certainly fight back my standard line is strap up your timberlands and get out there and start fighting back <laughs> what's going to be an interesting exercise is when we look back on the epidemic we will see the influence that the epidemic has had in so many areas and in healthcare it's been amazing. It did shift bedside manner. It did certainly change the patient-doctor relationship where patients felt more empowered to engage. The notion of peer support is introduced or is certainly lifted up by the HIV epidemic. Buddying, home care, voluntary services, all of these things came out of the epidemic, right? It was much more paternalistic and top-down. Mm. The epidemic changed so many things. Before we finish, what's Prepster? What's Prepster? Yeah. What's Prepster? So Prepster is a, uh, it's an online resource. It's a community movement. It's a social activism movement to educate and agitate for PrEP. We started in 2015, myself and my great friend and buddy, Will Nutland. And it was we call it kitchen table activism. We basically sat around one day and was like, right, we're getting all of these requests and people asking us questions around PrEP. And also the big organisations aren't really doing much about it. We need to get information out there. And so we put our own money into it. We set up a website. And since then, we've grown. We do lots of community activism around policy. We've educating people and trying to make sure that prep, access is, prep is accessible in this country, that people know about it. But also, we've done a lot of work with our global friends and buddies to make sure that prep is available where they are or if they want to do activism in the same way that we've done. We're an open, sharing organisation. So that's what we've done. If I went to Team Prepster, the website or whatever, what kind of services would there be that would be of use to someone like me? I mean, you'd go and you'd visit, you'd get all of the up-to-date, easy-to-read, easily accessible information that you would need around prep, how to take it, how to access it, right? Presumably, it's in a way that makes it easy for someone as stupid as me to understand, so it's not like proper medical jargon and all that. None kind of that of medical jargon, none of that. We link you to medical jargon, we link you to research and evidence if you want to be geeky and kind of, you know, because we get people kind of trying to fight fault in prep, so we provide everything. But our starting point is kind of basic level, so anybody can go on there and can find it out. You get all of that great information. It's available in different languages. We've got video, we've got audio that's available. If you're a young black African woman or if you're in, I don't know, in, in Birmingham or a young queer man in Sydney, Australia, you know, and you just kind of want to find out what PrEP means or you're in Beirut, we've got information that's there available to you, written 
by us and for us, but we put prep users front and centre of what we do as well. So the experience is real and it's authentic. We bring a lot of years of health promotion experience and knowledge into the work that we do. This is, whilst we're, we're grassroots, get your hands dirty activists, we are well grounded. We have a lot of experience, a lot of knowledge. At the same time, as taking a little bit of risk, being a little bit dirty, a little bit sexy in what we do, which big organisations no longer have the capacity or ability to do. And it's a bit more fun. It's a lot more fun. <laughs> it's so much fun what we do. You know, I love my work. I love the fact that we get to create stuff. Also, I've been doing this for a really long time and I'm always learning new stuff and I'm learning stuff from younger folk who come in and be like, actually, you know, we like what you're doing. Can we come in and try something new? We're like, yeah, 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 yeah. teach us. So what's the website? It's prepstar.info. Plain and simple, prepster.info, and you can follow us, Team Prepster or Prepster, at any of our social media. Cool. And do you want to put your social medias out there as well, or are you not bothered? My social medias are Mark, M-A-R-C-T, underscore O-1. Brilliant. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Absolute pleasure. That was Probably True, the multi-award-winning storytelling series written and produced by me, the multi-award-winning Scott Flashheart. It was designed to remind all of my queer siblings that we are none of us alone. You can find links, transcripts of every episode, and all that good stuff at probablytruepodcast.com. If you enjoyed or found value in anything you've heard today, you can support the show on Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash probablytrue. And if you want to get in touch, just search Probably True Podcast on the socials. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.